0: Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth and Education Podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Welcome to episode three of the Youth and Education Podcast. I talk to educational researcher, former English teacher and fellow LKM co-associate, Mr. Will Millard. We discuss Will's report, Oracy, the state of speaking in our schools. Teachers and pupils talk every day, all the time. We explore how teachers can be more intentional in using talk in the classroom to improve learning. Will and I also look at the socio-economic factors that affect Oracy and suggest what policy makers and school leaders could do to champion it and to remove barriers for teachers. We also discuss why OraCE appears to be more highly prized in early years, primary and special schools. Let's get geeking.
1: LKM Co. believes society
0: should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? All right, Mr. Will Millard, how are you? Very good, thank you. Good. Um, so today we're going to talk about the uh, your RSC report and explore what that is. Great. And also how it might be relevant to policy makers or um, teachers in schools and school leaders. Okay, sure. So tell me first off, Will, why is the report imp- important?
1: The report is important, I think, for two main reasons. One is it makes... A case for oracy being as important for pupils as literacy and numeracy which is one reason the second reason is that it's the first report really of this sort to really kind of explore teachers perceptions of oracy and what they think and feel about it mm. so yeah so it does those two things simultaneously so I suppose I
0: should kind of back up a little bit what exactly is oracy? People are used to the literacy, they know what numeracy is,
1: but what's, what's oracy? Sure. So it's, it, can be quite, it can be defined quite broadly. Um, <laughs> so just to kind of caveat my, my answer with that. Um, but I think really you can think about it in two main ways. One is it's learning to speak well, so it's learning to speak confidently and appropriately and really clearly. And the other way you can think about it is it's learning well through talk, so it's the kind of more interactional elements of, of, of speech and of communication. You can think about it as something that's subject specific, so there'll be very, you know, there'll be very sort of clear vocabulary and concepts associated with particular areas of the curriculum, which pupils need a good spoken grasp of in order to deepen their knowledge and understanding. Um, there are also more sort of generic components to it, so there is, you know, I think we probably all agree that there are kind of elements of good speech just in general um, and not necessarily tied to sort of specific subject content.
0: What is good speech?
1: So as I said, it really comes back to speaking clearly, confidently and appropriately. So it's having the, the knowledge of the topic to use um, vocabulary verbally. Um, In the appropriate uh, fashion and at the appropriate time but it's also having a really solid understanding of things like register so being able to change your register depending on maybe who it is you're talking to or in what sort of context give me an example obviously the way we're talking now it's quite informal it's quite conversational but the way that we might speak if we were delivering a presentation would be quite different so if i was talking about oracy in front of a room full of 50 school leaders i might Adopt a slightly different tone in order to do that. Um, and so, understanding the kind of nuances of spoken language in that way is really important for how people, um, how effectively people can then go on and communicate.
0: In terms of schools, how, this is always an interesting one because people listening might think, oracy, okay, it's just letting kids talk.
1: They talk too much anyway. Why mm. do I want them to talk even more? <laughs> like, what, what would you say to someone like that? I think, in part, the answer to that depends on the subject and it depends what it is you actually want the pupils to take from take from the lesson um, you may well have particular sort of target vocabulary in mind that you want the children to develop an understanding of you may well have kind of particular concepts that are necessary for them to grasp before they can move on that will obviously affect sort of the types of questions you're asking and the sort of tasks that you're setting during the lesson i think It's important to understand that we're not just talking about kind of all types of conversation and verbal interaction here, Um, you know, oracy has a purpose and it has meaning um, for the learning context.
0: So what is the purpose, because in my head I'm thinking whenever I hear things like oracy or literacy, I understand that they're really important, but my subject is maths and sometimes it's easy to discount it in a subject like that. People might think, okay, oracy doesn't really matter that much to me. Sure. So what would you say to somebody who may be a math teacher like myself or some other subject where they think actually that's more for drama, that's more for English, it makes sense, it doesn't really make sense to my subject.
1: No, that's a really legitimate point and something that did actually come through in our report as well was that, you know, math teachers, as a good example, tend to see oracy as, um, as something that's less relevant in their particular subject areas. And that's not to say that all maths teachers feel like that, but uh, that was kind of what some of our, our survey data indicated, uh, science teachers too. So how would you counter that? So I would say it's happening anyway. So uh, verbal communication, spoken language, these are the main ways that we undertake the process of teaching. So. Um, You know, while we tend to think of lessons as pupils sat writing, actually most of what the teacher's doing during that time is talking, and if what they're doing is setting up a written task, they'll be doing that almost certainly, at least in part, verbally. So I would say to an extent it's happening in your lessons anyway, and therefore it's really worth thinking about how you make what it is you're saying as effective as, as possible, and how you structure talk and how you set it up so that what the pupils are talking about can be as meaningful as possible. Um, So I think that would be what I'd say to that.
0: Okay, imagine I'm a teacher or, you know, you've taught yourself. What are the things that came out of the report or your research that you wish you'd known when you were teaching that would have helped you to structure this kind of thing better?
1: I think the kind of overwhelming thing, so again, I sort of preface this by saying this is maybe an easier thing to say than an easier thing to do. Um, but um, I think you spend a lot of time I certainly did when I was teaching feeling quite stressed when there's lots (laughs) of talking (laughs) and sort of feeling like things were on the cusp of unravelling and maybe that just said more about my lessons than it did about um, the Norrissey per se but I think if there's one thing I could kind of go back and tell myself it would be that talk is... You know, it's hugely constructive and it's hugely powerful. And if you can harness that in your lessons, it's okay for there to be noise, and it's okay for there to be movement and bustle. Um, and I think teachers get teachers sort of equate noise with distraction and a lack of engagement. And I think, you know, I mean, it'd be very naive to pretend that that's not the case in some situations, you know, often that, often too, may well be synonymous. But where, as I said, where talk is really harnessed and where all is really harnessed effectively, um, that ceases to be the case. And it sort of starts to be a far, far, far more powerful lever for supporting people's learning. Mm. So in terms
0: of going down that route, what, how can, well, there's two levels how can teachers harness it? And also what could people who are school leaders do to ensure that this culture is happening in the school and to make it easier for teachers to harness
1: it? In terms of teachers, um, I mean, there are steps that, both, that you can take at both levels, so at a school level uh, with the leadership or in a classroom. And I think that comes down to um, thinking about things like clear ground rules. So what is it that you as a class teacher in your classroom or you as a school leader want oracy to mean in your setting? How do you want staff and pupils to interact with each other? What kind of tone do you want to set when people speak within that institution?
0: What do you mean by tone in this context?
1: I think we're talking as broadly as, do you want people to be speaking politely to one another? Do you want teachers and pupils to be speaking as peers or do you want teachers to have you know, did you want there to be a deference there? Um, So it's sort of unpicking things like that. Um, And then from there, you can kind of start to break it down and look at, okay, well, actually, what does oracy look like um, in those different settings? So what does speaking politely to someone involve? A big part of oracy is actually listening. So what does listening look like? And again, this would be true both for school leaders and for teachers. So what does listening look like in your school? What does active listening look like if, you know, you're clearly listening to me because we're making eye contact and you're nodding and you're giving me non-verbal cues. Um, do pupils really understand that and how those mechanisms work and does the school make that explicit to the students?
0: Can I just pick you up on that? So sure. You spoke about making things explicit and earlier on we were talking and you said about, uh, you know, from my maths teacher example, you said it's happening anyway. So how can we make it more, it sounds like you're saying... That we need
1: to make things more intentional is that right i think so i think it's about being deliberate about what you're doing as i said to you this kind of this stuff is happening anyway um teachers and pupils talk every day a lot of the time right um so it's about being really deliberate about what the purpose of that is and then starting to deconstruct it and think about okay well if these are our aims how do we get there and how do we structure talk and how do we set the tone in order to make sure that um, staff and pupils are, um, yeah, speaking in a way that's, that's contributing to the overarching aims of what it is we're trying to achieve.
0: Are you suggesting there need to be separate or lessons, like what are you saying?
1: So that's one way of thinking about it and again our report sort of looks at whether this should be taught as a discrete subject or whether it's something that should be embedded I don't think there's a right answer to that question. Um, So, I think there are more generic components of what makes someone a good uh, speaker, which probably you could unpick as a separate lesson. Mm. Um, You know, we could sort of break down what it is to give a good presentation um, and look at that as something that sort of sits outside the kind of regular subject curriculum. I think where it's really powerful you have almost an element of both, so obviously an intrinsic part of subject teaching is making sure students are acquiring the knowledge and the skills that are appropriate for whatever it is that you're trying to build at that particular point. And there's going to be vocabulary and there's going to be concepts that accompany that. So to try and totally separate oracy from regular subject teaching I think is flawed uh, I think the two should go hand in hand. As I say, I think it's also possible to kind of see these more generic components of what makes someone a good speaker and maybe sort of focus in on those in separate sessions. Mm. But to come back to your, um, to your to your question about what school leaders can do, I think there are some easy wins here. Um, so I think that keeping up, for secondary school leaders, keeping up the momentum from primary is really important. Often pupils come in from primary to secondary full of beans and they're not necessarily that self-conscious and then sort of something mysterious happens sort of around year 9, 10 and suddenly pupils become (laughs) sort of mysteriously shy and awkward. Um, so, I think being mindful of that and keeping up the momentum and sort of setting the tone from day one in year seven and saying, actually, you know, we really value uh, oracy and we value what it is you have to say. Um, and if you say it in a way that we deem appropriate for our setting, you know, we're always going to listen to you. And making sure that momentum is kept up, I think, is is really vital.
0: Can I ask you something about
1: that, actually? So Mm.
0: the primary school thing triggered it for me. So um, a couple of podcasts ago, I spoke to Bart Shaw, and we were talking about a a report that he'd been part of for the Social Mobility Commission, um, noticing that progress of um, poor children basically slowed in secondary school. And the thing that surprised me most from that report was this was true for pupils who'd been doing very, very well in primary school as well. So I was wondering, if there, was there anything interesting that you'd noticed about oracy um, from your research related to... are there any particular elements to do with um, disadvantage or, I don't know, different types of pupils who are better at oracy or less good it, anything like that?
1: Yeah, I mean there's a really... I think there's a really striking link between Socioeconomic disadvantage in Oracy. So when pupils enter nursery school, on average, poorer students have less spoken language, less spoken vocabulary than their more than their rich peers. Um, Why is that? Well, it will be to do with um, the language that they hear at home. Um, it'll be to do with. Um, know exposure through sort of social networks um, be that kind of picking up things through parents friends you've got the whole kind of web of sort of social um, the sort of social fabric of interaction essentially um, will mean that certain students have far greater exposure certain young people I should say has have, ser- have far greater exposure to a wider array of language before age five than others. I can I ask you about that actually so
0: Whenever I hear things like that, it seems obvious, but it also seems kind of insulting in terms of we're saying that, broadly speaking, poor people don't talk to their kids as much. That could be an implication that people draw from it. Sure. Which is kind of insulting, I guess. Um, And I'm wondering, what is that... You know, are we going to see trends in the future where there are differences because pupils are people's young p- children actually are spending more time in front of screens. You know, is the vocabulary coming from human interaction or is the vocabulary coming from programmes or does that matter? I don't know if that was within part of your
1: research. It wasn't, it wasn't a focus of this report, um, but I think it's a really interesting question. Obviously it's super prevalent for sort of the direction of direction of travel both for education but also society, right? And you know the, the amount of interaction that young people have with electronic forms of communication. Um, I don't know if I can give a kind of particularly scientific response to that, but my my my, my feeling is that um, you know, technology certainly has a very powerful role to play in in sort of shaping young people's prospects. Um, for good and for bad. Mm. Um, But you can't really beat human interaction. Um, And I think, you know, however well we use technology, the the kind of the human component of communication is going to remain absolutely fundamental for, um, for young people's development. I'm kind of keen to return to the social disadvantage? Please do. Yes, sir, point. you. Go ahead. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I guess essentially, you know, we're sort of saying, is it patronising to sort of say that young people from certain backgrounds are, are turning up, having perhaps been exposed to less than um, than the more advantaged peers? I mean, I guess, I mean, yeah, it's, it's going to be a thorny issue, right? Um, but one, like, one response is kind of Opinions aside, this is what research indicates. Um, so, you know, there is, there is robust evidence that suggests that poorer students, on average, are entering nursery and preschool with less vocabulary than their relatively uh, affluent peers.
0: And how does that affect them going through the schooling system?
1: Well, this is critical, and this is why I think Oracy matters so much. We can see oracy as a way either of entrenching or of um, redressing social disadvantage. Um, gaps in spoken language, particularly for young people with speech, language and communication needs, tend to widen rather than narrow throughout schooling. Mm-hmm. Um, spoken language is an important predictor of later academic success. Um, across an array of academic outcomes, uh, English and Maths included. So making sure that we tackle or and we tackle it early I think is really critical for, as I said, sort of redressing what will otherwise remain a fairly entrenched cycle of um, socio-economic disadvantage. I think another reason for this is um, People sort of traditionally see oracy as something that's caught rather than taught and I'm coining a phrase there that I know School21 use. Um, the, Can you explain the, it for me? So people see oracy as something um, and this to an extent is true as something that is sort of bestowed on you by virtue of your background you know if you've got parents who um, communicate with you You know, a great deal when you're, you know, who talk to you lots. but essentially when you're you're a young child, who use a wide range of vocabulary, um, you will just ingest this and it will just kind of become a part of the fabric of who you are and, and the way that you're able to interact with the world. And I think to an extent that's true, but we also know we can teach it. So we also know that there are steps we can put in place when young people enter the education system to help address that where, for whatever reason, young people don't enter school with that that same level of spoken language. So I think...
0: Are those steps... Okay, so we were talking before about things being subject specific, and my background is secondary, as is yours. Mm. So I automatically thought about discrete subjects, but then, you know, we were just talking about early years and primary schools. How does that look in a primary setting,
1: where things aren't taught in subject specific ways? Well, um, so this is kind of sounding like a bit of a kind of get-out-of-jail-free response now, but I think, you know, this stuff is happening anyway, right? So mm. teachers are talking to students, pupils are talking throughout the school day. This is happening anyway, and what it is, what, what, what we need to do is make sure that what's happening is, is deliberate, as you put it, and, and purposeful. Um... I think with early years and primary, a lot of, a lot of the teachers, I sort of want to just draw, draw a distinction at the minute between what what the report sort of implies is happening in early years and primary and what it suggests is happening at secondary and some of the challenges there. Yeah, go ahead, explore it. Um, I think in general, early years and primary teachers tend to, hold see in perhaps, they maybe see it slightly more immediately relevant to their day-to-day job than maybe some secondary teachers do.
0: That came out really strongly from the report. Yeah, that
1: was quite a striking thing that came out of the report. And I think one reason for that, which we've already touched on, is subject specialism. So obviously early years and primary teachers are teaching across an array of subjects. Secondary teachers and FE um, tend to specialise. We know that some subjects tend to see see as part of what they're doing, to a greater extent than others, so English and drama and history teachers, for instance, um, see oracy as something probably closer to home than uh, maths and some science. Secondary teachers. I'm generalising here, but again, this is kind of what. It's alright. <laughs> Always maths, report. teacher. Bashing. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think early years in primary, if you've got a child who, I guess you're more likely as an early years or primary teacher to see a child spoken language as an immediate inhibitor for their ability to actually access what it is you're trying to do with them. Um, This is not to say that people's entering secondary school, this is not a problem for students entering secondary school, but obviously children being that much younger when they enter early years and primary settings, I think, yeah, the kind of the their ability to use spoken language or not is probably far starker, and so that's sort of almost seen as a starting point. And irrespective of what it is you're trying to teach, if your child can't speak well enough to sort of converse with you, let alone access the kind of curriculum content, you're going to see that as a real priority. I think that's I think that's a key reason. I mean, in the early years, it's also part of the early years framework. The communication of language is a prime area of learning for that. So it's sort of it's got this sort of um institutional emphasis as well perhaps in a way that it doesn't further down the line with with some of the older students
0: well the interesting thing actually as you were talking that i thought about when you said that um to paraphrase basically the ability to uh, speak well and have good oracy skills Mm. uh, later correlates with um, academic attainment Mm. and i was thinking didn't they just get rid of speech-language component in English GCSE, <laughs> 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 which seemed a bit odd, um, and also, you know, we're going towards a, a more uh, exam-heavy, written assessment style, mm, mm. Um, where there are not that many opportunities for assessment via speaking mm. and listening, The obvious, obvious assumptions like languages, for example.
1: Yeah, so... With the English GCSE, the speaking and listening component, um, that was a formally assessed um, and formally recognised yeah. accredited part of the, uh, of the GCSE course. Um, it's, still, it's now called spoken language, it still has to be assessed, but the results from that don't count towards a pupil's overall grades in English. Um, the national curriculum. Actually, I, I do want to kind of say that the again, it's also called spoken language, which is which is talked about in, in the national curriculum framework, both in the context of English specifically, but also more broadly across the curriculum. So there is acknowledgement in the national curriculum that this is something that we should be um, we should be looking at, and that schools should be thinking about. Um, and by spoken language it's sort of talking about some of the interactional components that we've been talking about. Um, but also then the more sort of subject-focused um, things like vocabulary, making sure that students are able to use verbally the, the language that they need to in order to access the, the, uh, the knowledge and concepts that they're being taught. But I think that's a I think that's a it's a point that's really important to raise because some of the sort of Barriers that we looked at to Oracy in our report very much kind of lead back to what you've just been talking about. So Oracy is seen as teachers as being really really important. The majority, vast majority of teachers recognise Oracy as being very very important. There are sort of there are things that get in the way of them actually kind of thinking about it and using it with with regularity and consistency. The Acknowledgement that it has in exams is one of those factors. So, where exams are focusing on students' written skills, which, by the way, is that's fine. <laughs> I don't <laughs> object to that. Um, Good. <laughs> but I think it's a question of balance um, and, you know, where, yeah, um, you know, the, the way things are, time is tight, obviously where the focus in exams is writing, that obviously then is what teachers may disproportionately emphasise as an output in their lessons. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a thing here as well around... Because we've not mentioned Ofsted. um, But if we're talking about sort of, you know, um, levers or... Incentives for engaging in oracy. This is a slightly cynical way of talking about this, but um, you know, if there are those incentives for teachers to engage in it, Ofsted now recognises um, the quality of communication and interaction in settings. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a sense of um, you need to have something to prove, and I mean. I'm using, I mean Ofsted here both literally, as in what is it that Ofsted are looking for, but also um, sort of as a euphemism for, in general, what is the evidence, and evidence in inverted commas, we need to have from a lesson that we've been doing, irrespective of what Ofsted are looking for. And I think a lot of teachers feel that they need to have students writing a lot of, you know, pages and pages of text to kind of prove that they've been doing something. Um, And actually, if they've been talking, you know, the learning may be uh, may be exceptional, but you know you've not got a kind of unless you've recorded it, which you can. Um, you've not got sort of proof that, that those conversations took place. So I think um, yeah, you know the GCSE content, the national curriculum, um, people's perceptions of what people's perceptions of accountability. Um, these are all things that affect the extent to which teachers use or in their lessons.
0: Right, so it sounds like we're talking about kind of policy-level barriers-ish. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in terms of, all right, if you had some policy makers listening, then what would your recommendations be for them in order to take away those barriers or make so this work in schools?
1: I... I really don't want to sit here and say I think Ofsted needs to do this, this, and this in order to, in order to boost or receive. Yeah. I think partly I say that because I think it's important, irrespective of what Ofsted are saying, mm-hmm. and Ofsted do say it's important. Um, but irrespective, you know, schools should be doing it because it's because it matters, not because Ofsted um, are saying it, are saying that they should. I think my one. My one recommendation, therefore, at the kind of policy level is to champion this as something that really matters. It doesn't necessarily, you know, if if you tomorrow introduced an English GCSE where it was 100% assessed on pupils' spoken language, which is not what I think should happen, you would have more talking at a secondary (laughs) <laughs> but I, that's not that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not sure that that is sort of necessarily desirable. Um, policymakers should be championing this as something that's really important, um, and then it's up to teachers and school leaders, I think, to be really thinking about how they can incorporate these processes into the sort of the fabric of what the school is doing. How do you think
0: policymakers could champion it? Is it just about talking about it more, ironically?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we've mentioned national curriculum, we've mentioned Ofsted, um, both of which feature, um, well, yeah, they don't call it oracy, um, but both of which do promote the importance of of spoken language. Um, Yeah, I think to a large extent this is about, you know, very appropriately, talking about it, and just paying um, you know, paying respect to the, the power that, that it can have for people's learning. Um, yeah So we're going to wrap up soon, but in
0: working on this report, um, is there anything surprising that came out that we haven't already discussed about? Probably.
1: so i think one thing that's um that's worth us touching on is the kind of independent uh, maintained split um so we surveyed independent schools and took case studies in independent schools as part of this report as well as um going into yeah mainstream settings um and special settings i should um, also add um, there was a general, there was a sort of more higher level finding which was that independent school teachers see ORC as more important for pupils' linguistic development. They are more likely to see ORC as more important for people's linguistic development. And that kind of didn't surprise me but I wasn't really sure why. I was thinking, when I read it, I was thinking exactly the same thing. You know, it's kind of, it's a sort of thing, you're like, yeah, that sounds completely plausible, but I don't really know why that should be the case, because surely, you know, we've been talking about how important ORC is for all pupils. Um, And I mean, arguably, the pupils who are more likely to be educated in the study system, it's going to be even more important for them. We went into an independent school, and we, we talked to some of the teachers there about why this might be, and there were two things that came out of those conversations. One was a general kind of mindset, I think, among the teaching staff that already see um, meaning in this context that really rigorous subject language, that really rigorous vocabulary that you're using to talk about your subject content and the ideas associated with it. Is fundamental to being to access what the, is sometimes seen as a sort of more traditional and academic curriculum in independent schools so I think partly it's around that it's around a sense of there's this academic you know there's this is very academic content which requires this very academic and rigorous use of language to, to discuss it. Um, the second reason is I think parental um, so um, all of the teachers we spoke to mentioned, uh, in the independent school, mentioned the influence of, of you know, parental wishes in this respect, the parents there expect their children to leave school being really articulate and really confident and very um, effective communicators and I mean our research didn't look at this but that wasn't something that came through so loudly when we were talking to mainstream schools. It was something that came through really loudly when we talked to special schools, and actually the way special schools see or see is a little bit different to how maybe some mainstream, particularly secondary schools see it. I think for special schools because you know they're working with a group of students who whose needs may uh, literally make again communication. Just more of an immediate issue. Like in order to access the curriculum, communication is the kind of foundational first step. Um, but I think also special schools see it um, as a form of empowerment in a way that some other schools maybe don't in quite the same way. So a number of uh, a number of the special schools we spoke to spoke really passionately about seeing Oracy as a means of empowering the young people that they're working with and really um, ensuring that they have literally and metaphorically got a voice um, for when they leave the setting. And I I don't think that's mirrored in quite the same way in, in secondary schools. I think it should be because I think that is as true for secondary students. I don't see any reason really why that's not true for any young person in the education system. Um, but I think that's more pronounced in specials. Um, and I think that same thing is also emphasised in independent schools, um, perhaps for slightly different reasons.
0: Thank you very much. for well, it's a fascinating report. really enjoyed reading it. Thank and you. I've really enjoyed our chat today. Great. So thank you work
1: Off to lunch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, people. I love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. 1. Subscribe. Press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. 2. Share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. 3. Review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye!